This is The Saucer Life, a podcast in which we examine concepts, events, or people orbiting the world of flying saucers. Few preconceptions snark when justified, no belief, no debunking. Something a little lighter this time. This is the story of Shoichi Harakawa, part one. So, back in the fall of last year, which, as I'm recording this, was 2021, we looked at some contactee stories from Japan published in the 1980s in the pages of UFO Contactee, the newsletter of the Japanese branch of the Georgia Damsky Get Acquainted program. And one of the features of this run of newsletters, which I found as usual on the um, website of Archives for the Unexplained, I'll throw a link in the show notes to that, is that there was a long serialized interview with a young man named Shoichi Harakawa who claimed that from adolescence onward, he was having contacts with beings from other planets and visiting other planets and may have actually lived one of his lives on another planet. And it's an interesting story. It was, it was too long and too involved for the more varied accounts of, of tales and things that we had in that episode about um, East Asia back in the fall. But I thought that Dipping into the story of Shoichi Harakawa from time to time here during 2022 would be interesting and enjoyable and especially useful as a sort of, I'm not sure if this is the right way to say it, but a sort of palate cleanser after particularly heavy topics like two episodes in a row looking at military and intelligence agency influence on alien abductions and the whole mind control thing associated with that. Let's talk to a guy from Japan who had some interesting and charming encounters with space brothers and space sisters back in the 1970s and talking about them in the 1980s. So this is what we're going to do sort of to format these Shoichi Harakawa episodes throughout the year is I'll go through one part of the story as presented in UFO contactee newsletter and then usually um, sort of supplement that with another feature from the newsletter. In this case, um, this is from UFO contactee number three, January 1987. And the headline is a young Japanese man visits other planets. Part one. So you've got Shuichi Harakawa being interviewed by Hachiro Kubota, who was the head of the Get Acquainted program in Japan and the Japanese translator of Adamski's work. So we're going to go through part one of this. And then after the break, we're going to look at another feature in this newsletter, which is George Adamski answers your questions circa 1957. So 30 years before we've got some Q and a with George Adamski, which is fun. So let's get started. Kubota begins his presentation of Shoichi Harakawa's story with a claim that is a little surprising coming from someone who is part of the George Adamski contactee scene. 
No one will dispute the fact that there is no life on other planets in our solar system. In order to prove this, some space probes have played important roles in the research of planets Venus, Saturn, Jupiter, etc. What did I just experience? No one's disputing that there's no life on planets in the solar system besides Earth? This undermines everything we know from reading the works of George Adamski and other contactees. But never fear, Mr. Kubota is not done. He's simply reeling us in, appealing to our sense of outrage that he might actually be betraying the memory of George Adamski by acknowledging that there's no life in the solar system. Luckily, he disabuses us of that notion fairly quickly. He says, however, there have been a number of contactees in many countries claiming to have gone aboard spaceships from other worlds belonging to our solar system. So if these flying machines really come from the planets in outer space, we must recognize that civilizations must exist on some of them. And he says, quote, do the U.S. and USSR cover up the astounding facts for fear that the world will be stricken by a serious panic? End quote. This is a common explanation by some supporters of George Adamski and other people who have made contact with beings in the solar system that the various probes and tests that have been done on the atmospheres and, and, and surfaces and conditions on Venus and Mars and other places are being covered up or manipulated in order to prevent the public from finding out the truth. Kubota goes on to explain that George Adamski, quote, an American contactee, end quote, like people reading the newsletter of the George Adamski Get Acquainted program aren't going to know he's an American contactee. But he says that, that Adamski, you know, had met people from Venus and Saturn, and that it's not as strange as it seems because there has been, quote, a large number of sightings of Adamski-type craft in Japan recently. And as well as all over the world, he relates the story of the young girl who we talked about back in the fall who saw something in the summer of 1986. He says there's sufficient evidence that there's enough sightings going on that Adamski's stories were, quote, absolutely true. And then he introduces us to Shoichi Harakawa. We have an amazing story of a Japanese contactee named Shoichi Harakawa, pseudonym 26, who also claims to have gone aboard a flying saucer and the mothership many times. He was supposedly taken to Venus, Mercury, and an unknown planet in another solar system in the direction of the constellation of Cassiopeia. I really love that, in the direction of Cassiopeia. Not in Cassiopeia, but you know, you're on the way to Cassiopeia and it's it's right around there. It's a planet sort of, I don't know, two-thirds of the way there. You, you can't miss it. It's, I don't know, on the left. So Shoichi Harakawa, pseudonym, now lives in a small city and works as a government official. Ooh, intriguing. They don't say what kind of government official it is, but to, I don't know, bolster his claims, Kubota says, quote, if it is of any concern, his father is in a high position at the prefectural office, end quote. So dad's a higher up somewhere at the sort of prefecture level. Kubota describes Harakawa as very sincere and honest. He's also an excellent telepathist showing, quote, wonderful abilities of clairvoyance and perception of man's aura. And the story that is going to be Related in this newsletter is something that Kubota says he has heard 
many times um, from Shoichi himself. They've talked about it a long time. It had been published in the Japanese language version of the UFO contactee newsletter and was very popular. Um, it supposedly, in the words of Kubota, created a sensation. So they decided to publish it in the international English language version. And this is basically a dialogue or interview between Kubota and Shoichi Harakawa. And each section is headed by little headlines, which are, which are kind of evocative. This first one is sending out his thoughts to the starry sky. And Kubota asks Harakawa, quote, what prompted you to contact the space people? I was a second year student at a junior high school when I awakened to the wonders of space. At first, I lived in a large city and then moved to the country surrounded by mountains. At school, my classmates often teased me because I moved from the city. I had no friends then and was very sad and lonely in my state of affairs. One day, I read about space and strongly felt like making an appeal to someone in space for response. So our hero here is actively looking to make some kind of contact. This isn't, you know, wandering through the desert or driving on your way home from work and being sort of accosted by space beings. This is intentional. Every night for a month, he sends out intense thoughts that he says are almost like prayers. And he sent a message that was this, quote, if anyone recognizes me on a small planet in space that is Earth, please show me some kind of a reaction, end quote. He did it every night. And by the 30th day, he was sending his thoughts out for an hour at a time. And he couldn't find anything. Nothing was happening. But then, one night, he saw an object, an orange object, fly across the sky, leaving a curve. And it surprised him. And he was thinking maybe his desire to see space people had been fulfilled at long last. He's 14 years old at this point. He's a junior high kid. And he keeps sending these messages every day. And it's just kind of sweet, you know, because he's just a kid. And he wants to meet space people. And honestly, given what he said up to this point, he's lonely. He doesn't seem to have any friends. He's moved out to the countryside. He used to live in the city. People are making fun of him. He just wants a friend. And occasionally he does notice the sort of orange light outside his window, but it seems to be when he's trying to cheer himself up, then he sees the UFO. When he's being sad that he's not seeing anything, the UFO doesn't appear. So, the sighting is connected to his feelings and connected to his emotions. And I'm sure that if somebody were to sort of look at this through the lens of Greg Bishop's co-creation hypothesis or other ideas like that, you could come up with some pretty interesting ideas. But for now, I'm just trying to tell the story. So when he cheers himself up, he sees the UFO and he's able to get a better look at it and thus is able to give us a better description at this point. At first, the UFO was so small that I could almost not see it, but the object became bigger and bigger until it finally became one large object like this. He shows a large circle with the fingers of his hands. When it descended, it was milk white or pink. When it approached me, I told the object by telepathy, turn at a right angle. Then it suddenly turned at a right angle, as I wished. The object appeared to move according to my mind, and I became a little afraid. Had I been connected with a phantom? but I enjoyed it so much that I kept on doing it. By the time I was a third-year student, I came to see large UFOs. For example, I incidentally saw a large hull moving endlessly between the rain clouds one day. 
I supposed it was a giant mothership, and I was greatly moved by the sight, feeling supreme bliss. I suspect that some of the language use and word choice here is the result of translating between Japanese and English, but I also want to believe that Shoichi Harakawa is just an insanely amazing master of the use of flowery language when it comes to discussing UFOs. So one night, he goes to bed, a little past 11 p.m., it's dark, he's thinking about the UFOs, and he starts to receive telepathic communications from the aliens. He says that he was trying to sleep, and it seemed very bright, even though his eyes were shut. And he feels this that this is a weird situation, and he sees black letters in his eyes against the, the brightness, I guess. And there were seven letters. That he jumps out of bed, turns on the lights, writes down the letters that he's seeing in his mind, one by one. And he sort of, I don't know, this isn't quite automatic writing, it's just a telepathic messages broadcast letter by letter, I guess. And eventually, he receives fuller messages. Meanwhile, I came to succeed in the transmission and reception of messages by using sentences. I wrote down what I thought in my notebook and concentrated hard. Then space people who were supposedly in a spaceship hovering somewhere in space would catch my telepathic thought wave and send their message back to me. This was a rather short stage, and after that, I finally came to contact the Spaceman. That first contact came about in this way. It was a Sunday morning, and Shoichi had planned to go to a bookstore later in the day. But during the late morning, he had a strange feeling that he had to go to the city of Shizuoka. It was a strong feeling, he says, that was beyond description. So he goes to the city and strolls around the downtown area, sort of window shopping, just sort of walking around, checking things out. As a man came walking from the opposite direction, I suddenly felt as if I was being pulled by him. He was apparently an ordinary businessman wearing a reddish necktie and blue clothes. The cut of his suit was very stylish. My first impression was that he kept himself clean. Anyway, he walked toward me, so I tried to make way for him. But then again, he came to me, so I tried to avoid him once more. For the nth time, he walked in my direction. I realized that he was interested in me, and I asked him by telepathy, Are you from space? He answered, Yes, in Japanese, by uttering the word through his mouth. I was much surprised to hear him. He pats Shoichi on the shoulder and says, Come along with me. They go down to an underground market in front of the train station and go into a little coffee shop. Shoichi begins to tell him about his strange experiences, which, quote, I thought had something to do with him. To my surprise, he knew everything about the secret experiences such as my own sightings and telepathic phenomena. He said we, space people, have misgivings about the current state of Earth, but we don't want to interfere with people's affairs by giving them answers to their ordeals from the beginning. However, we can give you some hints to stimulate your progress. That's the only way to save you. So this very much has a George Adamski sort of feel. You know, we, we know what you're going through. We have problems with some of the choices you're making here on Earth, but we can't give you the answers. We can just give you some guidance and this idea of saving you. It's very much in line with George Adamski. You'd think that maybe Shoichi had read some George Adamski before he had his contact. 
But as we're going to see, that isn't entirely the case. So the two men, one from Earth, one from space, talk for about two hours. They say goodbye. And since then, Shoichi says he's met six people from space, all from other planets, including a woman. The contacts continue for several years, and some of them are interesting. One time, he receives a message to, uh, for the next meeting, bring along a map of Japan. And then the spaceman put marks on several places and said, remember the places. And so Shoichi says, quote, I sometimes sent messages by telepathy to one of the marked places, and they sent back answers. The marked place was their secret base. They told me how they were maneuvering and what their network was like in Japan. It was a marvelous network. If you could skillfully send a message by telepathy to one of their bases, you would be able to know where UFOs were flying over Japan and their purposes. It was very interesting. End quote. Indeed it was. So we move now to a section headed tremendous civilizations on other planets. So Kubota asks initially, were the six space people whom you contacted all of the Japanese type? And uh, Shoichi Harakawa says that no, one spaceman was a tall white man. Uh, others were more of average height. And they were all sort of very attractive and they had their hair cut just like they had just gotten out of the barbershop. Their skin was very smooth, very beardless. Uh, the woman he met was uh, appeared to be Japanese. Shoichi is asked if they're all from Venus. Uh, no. The answer is no. Three were Venusians and the others were from Mercury. And the man he first met and talked to at the coffee shop was from Mercury as well. Now, Venus has a very highly advanced civilization, doesn't it, Shoichi? Oh, yes. This planet has a tremendous one. I knew because I was taken there. There were lots of awfully beautiful domes which glistened like rainbows, but when I entered a house, I could see the outside as if there were no walls. This was a marvel. There were two kinds of doors in the house, sliding doors and double-leafed hinge doors. I found such doors in their spaceships, too. In any case, when the doors were shut, I couldn't see any seam or a joint on the wall. This was also very strange. Rooms were not brightly lighted up, but were illuminated so softly that I could not recognize the source of light. This was another wonder. It's at this point that Kubota asks the obvious questions about whether or not uh, Shoichi was reading Adamski's books at the time. Shoichi says he wasn't. His friends recommended them, but he didn't feel he really need to because he was seeing the spaceships themselves. Then we learn that he visited other planets besides Mercury. One of them should not be a surprise to you. Yes, I was taken to Venus. In addition, I was invited to an unknown planet existing in the direction of constellation Cassiopeia, which belongs to another solar system. To my surprise, all the plants were very big on the unknown planet. Insects and animals were large too. Bees were as big as this. He shows a large circle with his hands. Interestingly enough, the bees don't have any stings. Also, I saw a plant similar to a rose without the thorns. Therefore, I believed that plants as well as animals had evolved without the instinct to protect themselves. I might add that the people on the planet were all about two meters tall on the average. They looked like Caucasians and were very pleasant people. All were like movie stars with handsome features. Buildings were quite strange in style because they resembled the Tower of Babel in ancient times. I felt as if all this were a dream, so I asked the space people, Why did you bring me to this planet? They told me that the planet was very much like Earth a long time ago, but had evolved ideally since then. I asked half-wishingly, is there a possibility that Earth will evolve like that? They said, yes, there is. 
I was most delighted to hear the answer. So Shoichi is told that he has an important mission to carry out on Earth um, and that he must not move to another planet as, as much as he might think he wants to. But um, they tell him that his descendants will steadily increase and that they will do great things. And so Shoichi's presence on Earth is vital for that to continue. So they know a little bit about his future and they know a little bit about his past as well. They tell him that he had originally or earlier been um, an inhabitant in a previous life on that planet in the direction of the constellation Cassiopeia. And then later he was reborn on Earth. Mr. Kubota then asks him if all the flying saucers and motherships that he went aboard were actually just from the planet Venus. No, some of them were from Venus and others Mercury. I went aboard many times. I left Earth 14 to 15 times. On the spaceships, I sat in company with strangers from Earth. I think there have been a lot of people who went aboard these spaceships, but they don't reveal their experiences. In the light of that, Mr. Adamski seemed to have a great courage and a stout heart. If a man going aboard a flying saucer tells the public about it, he will be attacked and eventually wrecked by them. Yeah, I, I'd say that's probably true. And then Mr. Kubota explains that it's you know very important to be careful because if someone is not careful, quote, he may be killed by the silence groups. I just want to jump in here and say how cool it is that somebody in the 1980s, the late 1980s, was still using the phrase silence groups rather than um, men in black, which is absolutely wonderful. I love that. And I'm all for bringing back the silence group as a term we use throughout uh, saucerology. And I hope you join with me in trying to make that term more current again. Anyway. Back to um, Shoichi Harakawa's reply. Yes, as a matter of fact, I had a thin time in the past. Some men in black appeared around me from nowhere when I was contacting and were deliberately standing at a place to be seen. As this was a great pressure to me, I was often oppressed with fear. But these days, their appearances are sparse. I think they have changed their plan in order not to make the public believe in the existence of UFOs. Also, the men in black seem to have recognized that the control of information is good enough for them. Therefore, instead of being nervous, they have only to make up false contactees talking through their hats. Then, genuine contact men are looked upon as lunatics and neglected by the public. There are more than a few would-be contactees being manipulated by wire pullers. Space people don't point out the false contactees, but I can telepathically recognize them by waves being emitted. I can also recognize whether UFO photographs are genuine or not by receiving impressions from them. Okay, yes, as soon as I sing the praises of using the term silence group, uh, Shoichi here uses the term men in black. It's okay, you can use both terms. I just want to see silence group pushed into things with a little more, a little more confidence. Also, um, they are no longer contactees, they are contact men. Um, which is an unfortunately gendered term. We'll adapt it to contact people. I don't know. Contact men just sounds, again, not like something you'd hear in 1987. And I, I put that down to, uh, to translation issues. So we go into a little bit of detail for the next couple pages about um, uh, Shoichi Harakawa's ability to read people's auras and to determine who is a true contactee and who is a false contactee through these auras and the ability to detect real or fake um, 
UFO photographs, which I think would be a really, really, honestly, kind of a useless skill in a lot of ways. I do like this idea that the silence group doesn't need to to threaten or shut up any contactees. They just need to flood the market with enough fake contactees to confuse the issue enough that the real contactees aren't taken seriously. I mean, honestly, I'm pretty sure that's what goes on anyway. So, um, again, it's, you've got this mix of of classic contacteeism with a dash of a little bit of more modern sort of understanding of disinformation techniques and things like that. This idea of, of auras and thought waves and photographs of UFOs gets expanded upon a little bit more, and it's weird. So I'm going to just play you this as well as the, the sort of headline that begins this section. Earthman's thought waves reach space people by seeing photographs of UFOs. While they often altered my frequencies, my power to see a man's aura gradually became stronger. Aura, a kind of rays of magnetic force emitted from a man's body as well as all things, has an interesting nature. When a man having a strong aura is in the company of a weaker man, some of the stronger aura is pulled by the lesser one and both are inclined to be even. I think the reason why the space people don't openly make their appearances is quite apparent. The moment they are identified by Earthmen, exchange of both energy may begin, and the space people's energy will be absorbed by the other. The space people said, Taking photographs of UFOs by Earthmen is a serious matter for us. This means that the Earthmen's thought waves will be sent to UFOs in the process, and they will have to protect themselves by keeping the thought waves from invading. This may be the weakest reason yet why they don't make themselves openly apparent to humankind. We get other stories. A flying saucer is started by man's thought waves. And another section, how to get what a man wants. The space people said, quote, if you want something or live a life as you wish, you should always visualize it in your mind or draw the picture on a piece of paper repeatedly. So it's kind of like you know, the secret sort of, sort of making your intentions known and the, and the universe will provide these things. And, uh, Harakawa has a, you know, a, a good opinion of this practice. Therefore, I think a great number of people should practice visualizing an image of a highly advanced earth. Then earth will become a better place for sure. It is not up to the countries nor enterprises, but to each individual to think and visualize a better world. Hey, if it works, knock yourself out. We learn a little bit more about the, quote, incredible circumstances on Venus. Um, they say, according to Adamski, there are many dome-type houses on the planet. Is this true? Yes, Adamski is correct in saying that there are many dome-type houses. But if you see the walls from the inside, you can see the outside through the transparent walls. It's just like a magic mirror. A house can move itself freely, too. I saw a house move into a large crater-like cavity where the earth rose gradually until the house became invisible. Mr. Kubota then asks, are Venusians of the Oriental type? No, most of them are of the Caucasian type, but quite a few people are Oriental-looking. I saw some Japanese who were taken from Japan to work there. Actually, quite a few Japanese people were working on planet Venus. At first, I was surprised at their Japanese language, so I asked where they came from. They answered, we were born in Japan. This sounds so much like some of the other contactee stories we've seen, especially um, 
either Coldass or Iarga, I think Coldass, where we've got people from Denmark and Switzerland or wherever living on these other planets and not fitting in and then going home. So this installment, this first installment of this uh, story ends with, um, this is my favorite question ever, how do the space people evaluate UFO research groups on Earth? They don't evaluate any groups at all. They are only appealing to the public on Earth. So, um, what do the Space Brothers look for in a good research organization? Yeah, they don't know anything about you and they don't care. They're going directly to the people. I like that. I like, it sort of takes the wind out of the sails of the UFO research organization as an institution. So, that's the first part. And it's good. I, I think we'll keep going with this at various times during the, uh, during the year. I was going to say during the semester, but during the year. Let's take a little break. I'll share some information with you. And then we'll come back for a few questions and answers by George Adamski from 1957 uh, that were published by Adamski and sent to, quote, his co-workers all over the world. It contains much valuable information on UFO issues even now. We will be back in a week fielding your questions and comments about this episode, so be sure to get those to us in the comments section under this episode on the website, on social media, through email. On the next regular episode, we're going to be doing our first Zine Scene installment of 2022 with some select magazine newsletter productions and writings of the not late, still around, still with us, still on the scene, Alan Greenfield, um, writer of Secret Cipher of the Euphonauts and Strange Rituals of the Men in Black, Secret Rituals of the Men in Black, some kind of rituals of the Men in Black. If you've seen Hellier, you've seen Alan Greenfield. If you attended the uh, Conspiranormal Conference, uh, Strange Realities, Alan Greenfield was there. Um, he's been doing this stuff for a long time and his and his publications views on the saucer scene back in the 60s and onward are very, very interesting. So that is what we'll be doing next time, taking a, a stroll through those. Um, if you'd like to support the show and get even more content, you can do so at patreon.com slash chizomedia, C-H-E-E-S-O media, or chizomedia.com. We'll take you there as well. Thank you to those who've been supporting us there. And um, we've had some bonus episodes drop for The Saucer Life and Great Lakes Lore, um, some videos, extended commentary on episodes, all kinds of interesting stuff. You can check out past episodes in your podcast app or at saucerlife.com. As always, we're on Twitter and Instagram at Saucer Life on Facebook as the Saucer Life Podcast, I think. And you can email us at the Saucer Life at gmail.com. You can contact us by post at Chizo Media, P.O. Box 68, Grand Blank, Michigan, 48480. Okay, let's wrap it up with some questions and answers from George Adamski or Adamski, however I want to pronounce it this week. <laughs> Okay, no background noise or sound effects or any special uh, presentation on these. Just some straight-up questions and answers. We're not doing um, the whole thing because some of these are pretty long-winded. But question, do you have information from the Space Brothers regarding the Russian satellite Sputnik? Okay, so this is 1957, and the Russians have launched Sputnik and turned the world upside down. What is George's answer? 
George says, quote, no, to the present date, October 18th, 1957, I have not had a meeting with the space people since the launching of Russia's baby moon. However, the next time we meet, I will make inquiries about this matter and include what information they give me in the next number of questions and answers. One thing I do know, the shell first reported to be following the little satellite and now said to be leading it is a spaceship. A check of information released on the subject will show reports of more than one shell orbiting with the Russian moon. During a meeting with the space people not long ago, we discussed the possibility of some nation succeeding in getting a device to orbit around our planet. At that time, they told me when any country did succeed with such a project, it would be watched closely. If it proved to be purely scientific, they would leave it alone. This seems to be their present policy, end quote. And the next question is also Sputnik related. Why didn't the space people help us get a satellite out first? And Adamski replies, quote, according to information I've received, not directly from Russia herself, but from people in other nations who are in touch with Russia, there have been many sightings and a number of landings in that country. From all I have been able to learn, some governments have given instructions to their air forces to fire upon spacecraft, and no nation can expect help from people at whom they shoot and whose information they ignore. Remember, the space visitors know no divisions and support no particular class. They're non-political and non-sectarian, recognizing all mankind as brothers and sisters. Their interest lies in humanity as a whole, wherever they find it, whether on our planet or elsewhere in the vast universe. But I can assure you, they will support no one in hostility. End quote. Okay, am I reading slash hearing that wrong, or did George Damsky basically just sort of come out and say the Russians were the good guys? in this situation so he sort of implies it doesn't he i've heard not from the russians but from other people that uh you know there have been landings and the aliens aren't going to help anybody who shoots at them and they didn't help the united states and suddenly the soviets have a baby moon i like that baby moon do 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 do, do baby moon okay i i won't sing anymore but I think um, I think there's absolutely an implication here that uh, if the Russians haven't received direct aid from the aliens, then at least the aliens do not have a dog in the Cold War fight. And I should say, I should point out that in all of the FBI documents about Adamski that I've read, none of them have addressed this point. So honestly, I think by 57, the FBI might have been done looking at Adamski. Maybe I'll go back and check that out at some point. But I don't know. He never really comes out and says, Yay's, yay, Russians or anything like that. But this is the closest I've, I think I've come to him sort of wading into the conflict in his actual writings. Another question. Why are the space people coming our way? Adamski says, quote, their presence in such numbers at this particular time is largely for scientific study. By now, almost everybody has heard something about the change our planet Earth is making on its axis. This is a natural phenomenon which takes place at regular cycles on all planets. They are observing this closely since a change anywhere in a system affects the whole system to some degree. It may also be noted their present visitations coincide with the International Geophysical Year, during which time the foremost scientists of all nations are seriously studying Earth and its actions. Furthermore, we are being alerted to the existence of neighbors in space by their craft through our atmosphere. Prior to proof of their reality, a large majority of the people were unaware of human inhabitants on other planets. It is their sincere hope to bring us into the family of our solar system through knowledge, end quote. Well, that 
makes sense. And I have to say that the the axis shift, the axis tilt, um, this natural phenomenon that all planets undergo, is one of the things that gets downplayed a lot in Adamski's writings, uh, often by Adamski himself. It doesn't come up very often. The philosophical and sort of social messages come to the fore most often. But I don't know. He changed his message. He didn't change his message. He changed what emphasis he placed on different parts of his message throughout his uh, throughout his career. But um, to be honest, I was I was thinking about a deep dive on the International Geophysical Year. But I don't know. I, despite taking a couple geology classes in uh, in college, I don't think I could sustain my own interest in that, let alone anyone else's. All right. Another question. Are space travelers like us? Quote, yes. Our spiritual teachings tell us we on earth are created in the image and likeness of the creator. Since this is true, and since this same creator is the father of the cosmos and all contained therein, would not his children in other rooms in his house of many mansions also be like us? End quote. Um, he's making some assumptions about spiritual teachings, quote, on earth, as though there were only um, well, not only one, he does sort of pluralize that, but he kind of makes the assumption that they all, you know, have this very similar creation story. He goes on to say, quote, on earth, we have people of various sizes and colors, but the same condition exists in other worlds. But while we divide these colors into races, the dwellers on other planets glorify their father in his wisdom for bringing forth the variations of himself. No one is judged by outward appearance, but all are reverenced for the d- divine life within end quote. So the answer goes on. We'll get to it. But this is one of the places, I don't want to say one of the few places, but one of the places that are relatively rare compared to other topics Adamski covers where um, humanity's racial issues are addressed. But he does so in such a very vague way. I mean, this is 1957. This is, this is you know, the era of letter from Birmingham jail and Little Rock and all that stuff. And you never see him commenting on specific issues like that. Um, he's sort of cynically savvy in that sense. He, he makes very good noises about racial equality, but uh, never really jumps into any uh, any specific issues or or circumstances. He goes on to explain, quote, space travelers are identical to us, only they have a deeper understanding of themselves and the cosmos of which we are all inhabitants. When we too learn to master space travel, our concept of the cosmos will be infinitely broadened. End quote. Um, that's interesting. Sort of explaining or, or sort of claiming that our conception, conception, our conception of the cosmos won't be broadened until we master space travel. But later on, I mean, just a couple of years later, he'd be doing his science of life courses and the cosmic philosophy courses, which teach all these things prior to us having mastered space travel. Of course, I don't know exactly how he defines mastering space travel. By the early 1960s, we've put people in orbit. We being humanity, not like we here at the show. Um, so maybe that is close enough to mastering space travel that he thinks it's safe to, you know, slip the secret knowledge to people. But um, I don't know. I'm probably thinking about that more than uh, more than he ever did. Okay. Do the sp- visitors support any specific form of Earth's society? Adamski answers, no. 
Such support would be complying with our custom of divisions. They recognize no false divisions of any kind. They understand life is eternal, and every person is born to fulfill a definite destiny. Each must learn his own lessons as he travels the pathway of life. Many have mastered lessons that others have yet to learn. Yet stretching before all is the eternal pathway without beginning or ending. Therefore, all are respected alike. So they have neither preference nor judgment for any specific form of our society. End quote. Now, this is one of those things I've got a little bit of a problem with. You know, that we, we recognize no divisions. You know, we, we don't, we, you know, have no preference or judgment for any specific form of society. Hitler, Stalin, you know, that's fine. You know, you're the ones who make those divisions, not us. It's all the same to us. We don't recognize any preference here. We don't think that, I don't know, Switzerland is any better than fascist Italy. We, we see that as the same thing. Really? I, I don't know. It doesn't, I mean, yeah, I, I get it. I get it, but I, I've got a, I've got a problem with that. We are, we are not too far from the horrors of two world wars and for the space brothers to preach about our need to overcome our differences while saying, yeah, we don't really have any problem with, with any particular society. You're all pretty much the same to us. I don't know. That's, um, that's bad, but let's move out of the, uh, the sort of philosophical realm into good old fashioned flying saucer questions for George Adamski. The next question is, why do we not hear of spacecraft crashing as we did in the early 1950? Yeah, that, and I, I think that's a typo. The answer, quote, the early crashes were caused when the radiation in our atmosphere was taken into their craft through a process similar to our air conditioning, our air conditioning systems. The crews became ill and lost fatalities had taken place. The crews on other ships began studying conditions and seeking ways to avoid such disasters. Now they have succeeded. They have perfected a small object which each crew member carries on his person while their ship is moving through our atmosphere. A similar object on such a larger scale is used to purify the atmosphere within their craft. No space person ever comes to Earth without one of these for protection to help him withstand our ra- the radiation present not only in our atmosphere, but in our food and water as well. End quote. Um, okay. That's as good a suggestion as any. Um, yeah. Okay. I, I don't really have much to say about that. And I don't have much to say about the rest of this. Oh, wait. One more question. I think we'll do one more question. Is their family life similar to ours? Answer, quote, yes. Their intimate family life is very similar. Intimate family life. Children are conceived and born the same as on earth. Life is more joyous for all are working and living in the common good. They work, study, play, and participate in interests parallel to ours. By preference, they are vegetarians, but not strictly so. Although they eat meat on occasions, they do not raise cattle for slaughter. Their houses vary in size according to their family needs. All homes contain innovations to remove the drudgery from housework. With a zest for life, they enjoy community gatherings and competitive sports events. In other words, their lives are normal by our standards, but they have overcome all jealous possessiveness, which is a blight haunting many families on earth. End quote. So it's not too different from what we saw in the Janos people. They work, study, play, participate in interests parallel to ours. They make love like the humans do. You know, it's wow. And it is, again, a very sort of suburban 1950s kind of life. 
um, it's very middle class. They're vegetarians, but they're not, uh, they're not uptight about it. They eat meat on occasions. He doesn't mention whether these are like chunks of, uh, chunks of fish sort of grilled by the lake. Doesn't mention that, but it's very interesting. And it's very interesting to me, of course, how, you know, he says this is a normal lifestyle. Uh, they have a normal lifestyle by which he means, you know, an American lifestyle, despite you know, they're seeing no divisions. They see no divisions between humanity because everybody should be like the Americans. I don't know. Anyway, I think that is enough for now. Next time, it's the zine scene with Alan Greenfield's work. Thank you for listening. Remember to send in your questions and comments via the usual social media or email channels, and we'll address it on our feedback episode next week. Our associate producer is Simpson J. Hanover III, and The Saucer Life is a production of Chizo Media, LLC. Chizo Media, our heart is with the people. Till next time, keep watching the skies, because the skies are watching you. <laughs>